Wow, we're in pennies. Fascinating. Right, fan out. We don't have much time. I'm after getting Podbot to transport us here in the middle of the January sales because I need a new pair of underpants. I'm after tearing the arse out of the other pair. It's been a very festive Christmas. Ensign Deadman, you take a look in the lingerie section, see if anything would fit me. Oi, oi, Captain. I'll find you a pair of extra, 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 extra large. No problem. Will, is there anything you're looking for in the sales? I'm just still... I didn't realise that beaming places actually tickled. It's just, I feel all tickly. Why do... Why, this is very, very tickly. Did you wear your nappy? Oh, God, I forgot to wear my fucking transporter nappy. You have to wear your nappy, Will. Oh, no. Ensign Deadman needs to get two pairs of underwear because mine is now full of foul. Oh, no. Jesus. He's dead, Will. Oh, my God, poor Ensign Deadman. <laughs> Will, I don't like being outside. Will we just go back? I thought we were in pennies. We're in pennies, but it's, there's too many strange people around. Oh, right. You don't like being out in the real world. I don't. They're all looking at me. Are we breaking the prime directive by being in pennies during the January sales? We are. It's also 1986. Oh, shit. Come on, William. <laughs> That's my mother. Stop looking at the women's knickers. <laughs> I, should have, I should have said that. Mama loves Lord of the Rings. There he is. Look, there's a little cunt following behind him. <laughs> Let's get out of here, Will, before we get rounded up as two whales. <laughs> well, at least we can save the future twice. Podbot, two to beam up. <laughs> the best bits. I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You are stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Don't call me stupid. Podcasts. The final career. These are the how you voyages of the best bit screenwriters. Their continuing mission to explore a range of scene themes. To seek out new ways for procrastination. To boldly go on and on and on when they've barely bothered their hole. <laughs> Hello, this is your Captain Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. And I'm joined, as always, by my Lieutenant Commander, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special and the new recipient of a BAFTA. Hello, Will. Hello, Kevin. Oh, my God, this BAFTA is so heavy. It's just so, so heavy, especially in space. The great thing about having a replicator is that I have now several BAFTAs and a few Oscars. <laughs> You're not better than Will. Come here. We're here talking about Star Trek. We're going to properly nerd out this episode. We are because you gave me a wild card. Because you're a big Star Trek fan, aren't you? I am a relative Star Trek fan in that I love the Silver Age more than the Golden Age. What's the Silver Age? This is the first time I've ever heard the terms like Silver Age and Golden Age in relation to Star Trek. Well, the Golden Age is the original cast. Okay. And the Silver Age is the next generation cast. Oh, okay. And it leads up to about the late 90s. That is considered to be the end of the Silver Age of Star Trek. Once you get into... We have the Brown Age. 
Bronze Age. Once you get mm-hmm. into where we are now, Star Trek is not something that I really keep up to date with. So I haven't watched any of the more recent TV shows beyond a couple of seasons of Picard and a few episodes of Discovery season one. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of left it behind them because it's not Star Trek as I loved and was a fan of. So for this, I want to focus just on the Golden Age and Silver Age okay. and not deal with the Kelvin timeline or the JJ-verse, you know, the, the Chris Pine reboot movies. Yeah, okay. Partly because I couldn't get them on Paramount+. Plus. For some reason, they're not on there. That's odd. That's odd as heck. It How is. not Paramount+. Plus? It should be there. They're not. But also, My I God. didn't really love those films. I loved the first one up to a point. It sort mm-hmm. of wobbled a little bit towards the final act. I really didn't like Star Trek Into Darkness. And Star Trek Beyond just doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. Yeah, I rewatched those films in research for this. And uh, the first half, the first Star Trek film, I had loads of fun with. I had a, a great amount of time with. But then Into Darkness was just so honestly bad that... Anything that Beyond tried to do, it, it was fighting an uphill battle and couldn't really recover from the bad taste that Into Darkness left in my mouth. So, yeah. Yeah. The 2009 Trek was my favorite film of that year. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I wow. absolutely loved it. It was such a blast. And it really felt like it had revitalized the franchise. But we're not talking about those we're talking about the original films and I can give you some little facts about Star Trek go on I'm, I'm shocked that there are any facts available about Star Trek on the internet well prepare yourself there's an awful lot of Star Trek to cover I can tell you that Star Trek it began in 1966 on NBC September 8th 1966 it was famously rescued from development hell by Lucille Ball what? Yeah, that's become well-known in the last few years. Didn't know it. And it was Lucille Ball at Desilu Studios that took it in. She didn't play by the rules. She was a bit of a tough broad, as they would say. And I think she took a chance on this guy and on this show because no one else was doing it. She deserves tremendous credit for being the one who gave my father the chance. So she used her power for good. Wow, that's, that's amazing. I mm-hmm. never knew that. Wow, I love Lucy. Fair play indeed. Yeah. Even more now. They had writers on the original series like Richard Madison and Harlan Ellison and Theodore Sturgeon and Robert Block. So a lot of really talented writers getting their sea legs on Star Trek. Hmm. Have you watched the original series? Yes. I only recently watched the original series. When lockdown happened, Mm -hmm. I, you know, between all the badness of the lockdown, I would normally read and I just couldn't focus on reading going to bed at night. And I just went, oh, what am I going to do to kind of shut my brain down? And as I was scrolling through Netflix, I saw the original Star Trek was there. And I went, I've never watched the original series. So I proceeded to watch over the course of the first two years. I watched all of the original series of Star Trek. All 97 episodes. Mm -hmm. And what did you think of it? Because I have not seen all the episodes. Yeah. Star Trek used to be repeated in the mid 80s. I remember on the BBC. I mean, it's been rerun forever and ever and ever. But I used to catch it then. So I remember, yeah. you know, seeing episodes where they're on away missions and they're, you know, dressed up as gangsters and what have you. It was quite different. My first contact with Star Trek Ooh. were the films from the 80s. That was my first touchstone. 
the original crew in the movies. And the series was actually a little bit different to my impression of those films. Because the series, I was surprised at how many episodes were kind of horror-focused and more about like kind of like freak of the week episodes or them being trapped in the lair of some mad scientist and having to having to get out or something terrible happening to them. And what I was surprised about as well is that the banter wasn't fully formed in the original series as well. And that kind of, I think, came to full maturity in those movies. I felt the banter between the, the cast kind of like fully came there. But I really enjoyed them. I just enjoyed the the idea of this world. I enjoyed them going and exploring new and interesting places. And an awful lot of the episodes revolved around gods. There were just gods. There was a lot of... An awful lot of the movies do as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing that Roddenberry really likes. But I really enjoyed it. Very much so. Good. Well, you can bring that context to the movies. Star Trek itself, the franchise, has produced 125 video game spin-offs, 900 episodes of television across 12 TV shows, countless books, comics, and graphic novels, and 13 official movies. We're just going to focus on the first 10. And it all began with Star Wars. <laughs> no, but it did begin with Star Wars because that was such a huge hit. In the long lines in front of the big city theaters across the country, the moviegoers wait for six hours or more. They are waiting to escape. The film is called Star Wars. It and other recent Hollywood offerings are obviously giving the public what it wants. Total escape cinema. Some fans just can't get enough of it. Yeah. Paramount looked around. Everyone was doing it. You know, it was the reason that Alien got made as well. The reason Bond went to space. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. They were like, what have we got that's set in space? What IP yeah. do we have? And Gene Roddenberry had been trying to get a sequel TV show to Star Trek off the ground called Star Trek Phase 2. And he jumped at the chance to do the motion picture which came out in 1979 directed by Robert Wise who won four Academy Awards in his career he also directed West Side Story The Sound of Music and Day the Earth Stood Still Thrust us ahead Mr. Sulu take us out Mr. Spock every minute brings that object closer to Earth I need you I am convinced we are inside a living machine. Shall I go to battle station, sir? Insatiable curiosity. Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. We got this one off to a good start. I hope so too. When a destructive space entity is spotted approaching Earth, Admiral Kirk resumes command of the Starship Enterprise to intercept, examine, and hopefully stop it. What did you think of the motion picture, Will? This film was the last of the original crew films I actually saw. So I saw all of the, let's say, from two to six. And then the motion picture, because it was I couldn't get the motion picture. It wasn't on VHS anywhere, and it wasn't really broadcast. And then eventually, I remember seeing the motion picture being broadcast in widescreen on RT, 
you know, back in the 90s. Radio Telefisieren, you're watching RTE1. And I remember being kind of fascinated by it because I was in a time of watching movies where I appreciated kind of longer, slower films like 2001. <laughs> well, you got your fill with this one. I got my fill with this one. Yeah, I really did. And I really didn't quite get it. It was one of those films that I didn't watch in one go. But revisiting it now, it's beautiful at times. It's really, it's, there's some gorgeous shots of the Enterprise itself. Douglas Trumbull. Yeah, the legend. Yeah, he was brought on as well under duress. He did not want to work with Paramount. Really? And he did it to run out his contract. And really, I think all the best stuff in the motion picture is all of his special effects. That's the triumph of this film is is, is kind of the spaceship porn in this. And then it's contrasted because there's there are moments where the cloud, this, the effects of the cloud kind of look very ropey or this kind of entity that's coming towards them. So there's some like amazing special effect shots, but also some kind of ropey special effect shots. But ultimately, it's so 70s looking with those costumes as well. Oh, yeah. I don't dig the costumes. I don't dig. And the fact that they put the, the, the crew on as kind of co-stars. The main stars of the film are, you know, Stephen Collins' character and um, that lady officer, the bald lady officer. A Bollywood actress. Yeah. Ilya. And that was such a kind of a bad move, I feel. And also... Ah, the plot is so thin. The plot is for such a long film. It's a very thin plot. Well, you were talking about that the TV show had an awful lot of episodes that revolved around God, and this one also revolves around God. Yeah. It's the only film in the franchise that Gene Roddenberry worked on. Oh, the only film that he actually worked on. Wow. Yeah. So he gets a wow. credit in all the other ones as a creator, but he wasn't actively involved in any of the, the sequels. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Didn't what did you think of it? <laughs> what did I think of it? It's a film that if you watch it divorced of where the franchise goes, it's a very 70s sci-fi. Mm-hmm. It feels more like um, 2010, the year we made Contact, mm-hmm. the, the sequel to uh, 2001. Kirk is very staid in it. He's not himself. He's not the, the sort of the exuberant, boisterous character. There isn't any quick wit. There's an awful lot of like empty, cavernous sets. It's got a, a, an eerie vibe to it. It feels like if you were stoned, it'd be a good film to watch. I, I will say this. It's got an incredible Jerry Goldsmith score. Mm-hmm. Like Thanks. some of the music in it is absolutely fantastic. The Klingon theme that he has is brilliant. I've written so many scenes just listening to that where it's like... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. But it was, a, it was a hit, a relative hit. It had a huge budget for Star Trek. It was 44 million was the budget. Wow. You'll notice as we go on, the budgets fluctuate drastically. So this one had 44 million. It made 139 million at the box office, and it was the fourth highest-grossing film of 1979, behind Superman, Amityville, and Rocky II. Oh, I didn't realize it was such a hit. I kind of, in my head, thought it was. Uh, I had some. I somehow thought it was a bit of a flop, but obviously not. There's a few films like that where the mythology surrounding them paints a different picture to what was the case in reality. Yeah. So I also thought that this film was a flop. Okay. But, uh, no, it was a hit. Relatively, a huge budget, but you know, it wasn't Star Wars. I mentioned it on the mini bits before, Patreon. but I discovered a fun fan edit of the motion picture, which is on Vimeo. I think I it's basically the motion picture, but cut to recut to Daft Punk music, and it's quite good. <laughs> and it cuts the whole film down to about 25 minutes. It's mesmerizing. <laughs> There's a moment in the motion picture where I went, Oh, this is it. And it's a moment where we see the original trio of Kirk, 
and Bones and Spock and they actually are together for the first time kind of like in the second half of the movie and you can feel just them together the energy between those three actors is you go oh that's it this is Star Trek so just put the focus on this central trio and we'll be fine but it kind of slips back there's something hard to describe about the original cast which I don't feel is there through even the rebooted movies there's a star power to the original cast where they just feel even if they get a bit goofy or campy they have a, a grandeur to them there's something really Hollywood about them like yeah the way that McCoy will deliver his lines the way that Leonard Nimoy will respond they just feel bedded in like statesmen yes I don't think that's recaptured in any of the the TNG movies or the reboot films it's different the folly is trying to replicate that. I think. I think it's, it's the impossible. charisma of the actors. Yeah, and I, I think it's either you have it or you don't have it. But they had that perfect. That they had that little alchemy that worked for them. You know what I mean? It worked for those shows, and uh, worked for those original movies. But the, I think the TNG has a different kind of vibe, which works in the show. But we'll get to it. I would die for the TNG cast, but I have different feelings that I'll I'll elucidate as we get there. Yes, I think we'll hold that. What I will say, though, is Star Trek is characters. It's not just phases and tricorders and transporters and warp speed. You could take Kirk and Spock and put them in an elevator, corridor, alien planet, San Francisco. It's those two polar opposites talking to each other. They're so defined. They've got such strong personalities and the charisma of the actors that's Star Trek you got it as well with TNG with like Worf and Data you could put them anywhere despite their Mm -hmm. makeup and whatever yeah motion picture I would say it is a good outlier similar to like how the first Rambo isn't indicative of where Rambo would go in the rest of the movies I liked it I didn't love it same I will go back and watch it I know I'm going to go back and revisit that film again and again not every year, but like maybe once every 10 years. And uh, I just like the, mo- I like the mood and tone. I like the special effects and just like spending time with that cast, you know, even if they're not the central focus of the story. If you want to just get an insight into the film, I think when the Enterprise enters V'ger and it's mm-hmm. dwarfed by the magnificent strangers of Trumbull's special effects yeah, and it's got that Ghostman score, that's when you feel like I'm watching a space opera here. And I do love what V'ger actually is, that twist. I love that idea. I guess that from the opening second, like V'ger, I was like, uh, because maybe because we had the Voyager TV show. Oh no, because when I watched it, I was, it was the nineties when I saw it. So I was like going, what is this V'ger? I didn't even know what V'ger was. I didn't even know what. So it must have been the early nineties then. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. For me, it was just like mind blowing to think it was based on an actual real thing that's out there in space. So I thought that was cool. Computer commence recording. Captain Kirk, these messages will detail my attempt to contact the aliens. Warning, your emergency evacuation thruster pack has been armed. Once ignited, the burn duration is 10 seconds and may not be aborted. Push the igniter enable release to begin a 10 second countdown to thruster ignition. To abort countdown, flip the control arm up. I intend to calculate thruster ignition and acceleration rate to coincide with the opening of the Vitor orifice. This should facilitate a better view of the interior of the alien spacecraft. 
But then came in 1982, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. Chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. There she is. I love this one. Admiral James T. Kirk is feeling old. The prospect of accompanying his old ship, the Enterprise, on a two-week cadet cruise is not making him feel any younger. But the training cruise becomes a life-or-death struggle when Khan, an old enemy, escapes from years of exile and captures the power of creation itself. The creative team had changed behind the scenes. It was now to be directed by Nicholas Meyer, who's regarded by many in the Star Trek fandom as one of the best directors to ever tackle Trek. It is great. Released in 1982, it was the eighth highest grossing film of that year on a budget of 12 million. Dropped from 44 down to 12. Jesus. And it had a box office of 97 million. So contrast that with the motion picture. Oh, I'm made shocked. 139. Wow. Because like in my head, two was like the, is, 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 was such a success and such a huge hit. And of course it came out in the summer of 82, one of the... Most ET and yeah, yeah Poltergeist, the, the thing, and oh, Blade Runner, and you know, mm-hmm. and Star Trek Two came out as well. Like you know, such a summer of hits. It was a huge critical success, so oh, that's probably it? coloured it. Yeah, it's it's the Nicholas Meyer movies are regarded very favourably by critics and fans. I bet you people the box office was down because people might have been stung by the first the the motion picture, and they went, oh, I'm not going back for another snooze fest. Yeah, the sequel always gets the box office that the first film generated. Sort of the yeah. goodwill that the first one generated. doesn't matter if you come back with a cracking sequel. If the first film was a bit of a dud, you're going to see that in the returns. Yeah. I love how this film opens with that title card that's basically saying, hey, this is in the 23rd century. And I think he intentionally put it in there to tip off his father, who had never watched Star Trek. And he went, well, my dad doesn't know what's going on. So I want to kind of ground him and let him know where we are in, in, in the timeline. 
So this is a theory that I have, and it's not you know unique to me. Others have said this as well. The original cast movies, they benefited from having to reestablish the cast and the personalities of the characters with each film, and that the distance between the films allowed for them to come back and like in this one, everything is revamped. The uniforms are different. The yeah. ship looks different. It even begins with like a faker where it opens on Kirstie Alley as Savick mm-hmm. and she is sitting in the captain's chair. Captain's log, stardate 8130.3. Starship Enterprise on training mission to Gamma Hydra, section 14. Coordinates 2287.4. Approaching neutral zone, all systems normal and functioning. Leaving section 14 for section 15. Stand by. Project parabolic course to avoid entering neutral zone. Aye, Captain. Course change projected. Captain, I'm getting something on the distress channel. On speakers. Imperative. This is the Kobayashi Maru. 19 periods out of Altair 6. We have struck a gravitic mine and have lost all power. Our highest penetrated and we have sustained many casualties. This is the Starship Enterprise. Your message is breaking up. Can you give us your coordinates? Repeat, this is the Starship... Our position is Gamma Hydra, Section 10. In the neutral zone. How penetrated. Life support systems failing. Can you assist us, Enterprise? Can you assist Data us? Data on Kobayashi Maru. Subject vessel is third-class neutronic fuel carrier. Group of 81,300 passengers. Damn. Everything about this film feels like this is what Star Trek is. Mm-hmm. I love the look of the, the ship. I love the, the tactile nature of the fact that they're, they're levers and they're winches and it feels very much like a submarine. This for me is my original Star Trek. You know, this is for me, Star Trek is, is those red suits with the kind of the, the, the white woolly collars. It's not the, the jumpsuits. This is what I grew up with. Okay, it looks like is- Santa Claus. <laughs> he kind of does but also I remember this is one I must have watched really early on on television and I remember the horror and dread because if this taps into what was in that original series there, there were serious moments of horror in that original series that was the first scene I saw in this film I had seen the TV show sitting on my dad's lap and right. I remember one night catching a few moments of the scene when Chekhov is down on the planet mm-hmm. and the ear bug thing is put into their ears yeah and I don't know. This just felt, this film just looked cinematic. It just had a whole different other vibe to it. But I remember just being horrified by that. Yeah, scene. That's the scene. That's the exact same. I was freaked out by it. I was like, "What am I watching? I shouldn't be watching this. This is fucking horrifying." But also, it's great because the impact of that made you feel such dread and terror for the characters. It really gave Khan as a villain great weight. Because you knew he could do something monstrous like that, and uh, it's it uh, it just works. It just works for that uh, that film. There's an error in the the film though. Chekhov and Khan know each other, but they never met on the original show because Chekhov wasn't on the cast then. Wow! Oh wow! Yeah. I didn't realize that, and I actually rewatched that when I you know the original episode and went, oh, they were from the '90s, I believe. I think that's where the um, can I think can originally they were frozen in the nineties or they were like superhumans. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, his chest is real. Oh really? Pe- people <laughs> thought that it was a prosthetic, but no, that was <laughs> Ricardo Montalban's actual chest. But um, 
Yeah, everything about this is is Star Trek for me. Like Shatner is back in boisterous, declamatory sort of performing mode, but the direction of the film is fantastic. Like, what makes a good scene? It's got to be the writing, the performers, and then it's the staging and blocking the direction that they use. And there's so much that Nicholas Meyer does in this film. He will frame Kirk and Picard to see the differences of them, but they they're united. You say Kirk and Picard. Oh my god, <laughs> Kirk and Spock. Yeah. I get that mixed up because Roddenberry loved the letter K. Oh, I didn't know that. He found it a very robust, strong letter. So he's got so many characters with K sounds. It's like Kirk, Picard, yeah. Savick, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, oh, wow. Sarek, Klingons. Oh, I didn't know that. But anyway, it's the way that he stages it. Kirk would get up and he'd cross the, the bridge and he'd stand next to his son and he's leaning over Spock. And you see in that shot that the three of them are united, him, his son, and Spock. Mm-hmm. And then it, he'll just slightly pull focus to Spock, where Spock turns and thinks, he's going to do something, and we're aware of it. We don't know what he's going to do, but we see that he's had a thought, and he doesn't tell Kirk, and he gets up and he leaves. And you, it's all these sort of like very subtle wonders yeah. that he does, and it's the staging. It's like, he's a really good director. And I also think, watching these films, I know Shatner gets an awful lot of flack, for his delivery. It's just because he's become lampooned and whatnot. But my God, I love his performance in these things. I'm going to say that he is a great actor. Yeah, yeah, I do think he's a great actor. He's he's a big actor, you know, but the character is huge. The character is big and there's a spot in, there is a scene. He's a movie star, though. You just want to watch him. There's he's a, never boring. No, he's never, ever, ever boring. He's always fascinating to look at. And But there are scenes where he underplays things. Like there's a, a critical moment where he's sending over he's is he sending over like you know information about the uh, Je- project Genesis or something like that I can't quite remember how, what was happening in the moment, but Kirk doesn't deliver a, a, give a big delivery of the line he he doesn't go like fire or whatever he goes he just delivers it quietly and subtly and it's it's just a great it's either a great take but it's a great performance of that line and you know I think. It's really well written. Uh, I think they they nail the characters and and again, it's a it's a movie where Kirk doesn't do any fighting. The two the two guys never come face to face. They're in their own ships, and it's all about ingenuity and wit and and outsmarting each other. But I just love the the details that they have. You know, Kirk is he meets up with an old flame, Carol, Mm -hmm. and there's no they don't waste any time in having them try and rekindle an old romance. It's like that's in the past. That relationship went away. It's not going to be rekindled. No, the time has passed. He's lost that moment. And he has these little gentle lines where it's like, my life that could have been and wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And he'll frame them as well, where Kirk will have his back against Carol and she'll be leaning in a doorway. And if he got up and he walked through that doorway with her, it would be a different movie. But they, they focus on the regret of Kirk of dedicating everything to being a captain. And look what it's cost him. It's cost him this love affair that he could have had that he could have sustained and the son that he never really knew mm-hmm. and that's all just layered in there and then it's the familiarity and the friendship of the other characters and and how much he relies upon Spock you know the most famous scene in this movie is the sacrifice of Spock yeah and even if you're not familiar with the history of the characters you haven't seen all the episodes of the, the show the gravitas and the sort of the, the 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 gentle camaraderie that the two have Spock and Kirk it makes that ending devastating. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I also love, I love the naval battle in this. I love Absolutely. that old school, 
they they've uh, Khan and and Kirk they they've gone head to head in this nebula. Their ship sensors are out. They're basically flying blind and they're guessing where each other are. And it's old school tactics. And it 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 does something that it does the opposite of what I what what I don't like in the new films, which is like CG overload of like you know ships bouncing off planets and all that sort of stuff. These are big hulking objects that are just lumbering through space. So you have to maneuver them very, very carefully. The only thing that I find a bit hooky is that they, they sort of make it look like space is two-dimensional. Like they'll fly over and under each other. But really, these ships could be going at awkward angles to each other. Of course, there's yeah. No, yeah, there's, yeah. There's no up or down. And that's what I love. I love the naval battle in this. I think it's um, re- really thrilling. And it's simple and small. Simple and small, but really effective. And again, the test of a great movie is where the people come away from it quoting it. So it's like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Mm. It's like there's so many of these great lines in that film, but it's regarded by many as the best Star Trek film. It's a quintessential Star Trek for me. I love this film. It's funny how you um, mentioned that this was the first film that Gene Roddenberry didn't have creative control in because one of the things I just learned yesterday from a book that you sent me was one of the th- is one of the things that hampered Star Trek as a franchise and hampered the writers who were trying to come up with stories in that franchise was Gene Roddenberry's Roddenberry Box. Have you heard of the Roddenberry Box? Yeah, there's no conflicts. Yeah. He was a utopianist. And to the extent that humans in the 23rd century don't even fear death, we've actually conquered our sense of fear of death. And that is so limiting, you know, for a writer when you go, shit, if our characters aren't even afraid of dying, how do we invest this with any drama? Because that's essentially what's going on with this. We yeah, have- I mean, it's it's Kirk realizing that he's got fewer days ahead than what he has behind him. Mm. But it's, it's a great swashbuckling adventure. It starts off a trend that I see in a lot of the, the Trek films, which is quoting Shakespeare or quoting literature. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Khan is like from hell's heart I stab at thee there's also a lovely moment in it if people search for gif of Kirk it'll come up with like Khan yeah and for some reason I thought that that had happened after his son was killed which isn't until the third movie yeah but it's actually the reaction to him being duped by Khan being led into a trap and essentially being buried alive as he puts it so he's furious that he's bested him yeah, and they do a lovely thing with Nicholas Meyer cuts to Can reacting to hearing almost the echo of of Kirk, and he looks orgasmic. He's just like he leans back and he's like, "Ah, oh. that's all he's waited for is just yeah. to hear the agony of Kirk screaming out his name." Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic romp of a film, and and yeah, it's proper great. Star Trek. Yeah, I, lo- I I I do love it. I do do love this film, and tell us, Kevin. Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. Yeah, which is a direct sequel Yes, to Can. So 2, 3, and 4 are like a trilogy. They are a trilogy, yeah, absolutely. And this one came out in 1984. Nicholas Meyer wasn't directing it this time. Leonard Nimoy was taking over. Spock himself, right, okay. Spock himself, yeah. And I'll play a trailer. All that they've loved. All that they've fought for. All that they've stood for will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir? The word is no. I am therefore going anyway. 
You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all mornings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Bring out Bird Bracer. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's not responsive. Fuck! We're a sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. The adventure continues. Kirk and crew risked their career stealing a decommissioned Enterprise to return to the restricted Genesis planet to recover Spock's body. Did you notice that Leonard Moy is not credited as being in the cast? Oh, I did not notice that. In the opening titles. No, I didn't notice that. It skips over him. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Very good. I uh, watched some behind the scenes making of documentaries for this that's on the Blu-rays. And of course, Shatner's ego did not like being put in a position where he was being directed by his co-star. So their relationship is fraught, but they ended up, whether it's true or not, becoming the best of friends. Like Shatner has described Leonard Nimoy as the only best friend he ever had other than his his wives. <laughs> right. But he said, you know, not somebody who's just grab a beer with them, but someone who you will call up in the middle of the night and say, I have a problem. Yeah. And they'll listen to you and help you. And there's a lot of affection. There, but he also said that he was thrilled when Leonard Nimoy got the director's chair because they had negotiated a favored nations contract. So whatever he got, Shatner got. So Shatner knew that I'm going to get to direct the next one. If you get to direct, uh-huh. I get to direct. <laughs> I loved in one of the interviews I heard, where Shatner talks about, I can't do a Shatner impression, Shatner talks about teaching Leonard everything because Leonard <laughs> didn't know how to direct a scene. So I was doing, a, he was doing TJ Hooker at the time, his TV show, and uh, I got Leonard to come over and I showed Leonard everything. I showed him how to talk, how to deal with the camera crew, how to deal with this, how to deal with that. So Leonard owes me everything. Do you not think that that's him being facetious? It's hard to tell with fucking Shatner. It really is hard to tell with Shatner. He, he's an odd character. He's fucking furious on Twitter. You don't want to get on the wrong side of him. <laughs> well, he's still alive to be furious on Twitter. Oh my God, right, okay. <laughs> um, it was the eighth highest grossing film of 1984. You know, the great year of 1984. Yeah. It had a budget of 16 million, so they upped it by two. And it had a box office of 87 million, so it was just coming slightly under... Right. The 97 million of Wrath of Khan. It's not regarded by many as their favourite Star Trek film, but I would say it is a great sequel to Wrath of Khan. Yep. Even though it feels at times like a victory lap, because they do replay the ending of 2. I also wonder as well, because they set it up quite elegantly in the end of Khan, where Spock does the mind meld with McCoy mm-hmm. and goes, Remember, yep. you're not going in there. Perhaps you're right. What is Mr. Scott's condition? Well, I don't think that he... I'm sorry, Doctor. I have no time to discuss this logically. Remember. Did they know he was going to come back in the next one? In the in the documentaries, they say yes. That Nimoy, they did? Yeah, in Nimoy, it's like they wouldn't have done that unless they had intended to bring him back. 
So oh. it was, yeah. So he says that there was all talk about, oh, Leonard Renault only came back because he was allowed to direct. And he was like going, that's bullshit. He was like going, no, we had already planted the seed that he was going to come back at the end of two. And he claims, Nimoy said in his interview that it was that it's bullshit, that he was always going to come back. So there were a few changes behind the scenes. Kirstie Alley was out. She, she didn't want to get typecast. So they had to recast Savick with Robin Curtis, who I think... She's a good yep. Savic. I'd almost prefer her to have been in the second one. Mm-hmm. I think she fits in a little better. She really looks like a, a Vulcan. She does. Christopher Lloyd was the villain. Krug. He's great. Uh, he is great. And you had Miguel Ferreira in there. Did you notice that little cameo from him? He's one of the helmsmen. <gasps> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, In my head, he was in two, but it's three he's in. Yeah. There's a, there's a few famous faces pop up here and there. Gene Roddenberry did a smart thing because he consulted Isaac Asimov and he said to him, Spock, this is during the TV show, Spock is becoming an incredibly popular character and it's leading to some tension amongst the cast. Because I suppose it's like Data would, TNG or or Seven of Nine with Voyager, there's always a breakout character where people think there's something about them where they're struggling with their humanity. They think they're human. Mm. There's something that you're drawn to, I think. But he said to Isaac Asimov, it's creating some tension, the popularity of Spock. And he said, what you need to do is you need to bond Kirk and Spock. They need to be yin and yang so that whenever people think of one, they can't think of them in isolation. It's always got to be both of them. So they become a duo. So it's Kirk and Spock. It's never really just Spock. It's never really just Kirk. It's always mm-hmm. Kirk without Spock just feels he's not really all there. Yeah. And yeah, this film... I, I like that Leonard Nimoy gave the cast something to do. Chekhov doesn't get much to do, but Uhura gets to fire a phaser. It's great. The, the breakout scene is my favorite scene in this fucking thing. I love it. The the, the stealing of the Enterprise is so yeah. much fun. They're going rogue for the yeah. first time. It's a heist film, but it's a, it's a lot of films. The, the Enterprise in this one is a lot more eerie. It feels like a haunted house at times. Because it's so empty. Yeah, there's no real crew there. Yeah. It's also like a body switch comedy. With McCoy, where he's got Spock in his head. Yeah, of course, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, and I love the way that they obviously used the eighty-yard Nimoy's voice over McCoy's voice. You know, you can kind of go, "Oh, is that Spock speaking, or is this, or is it Bones?" That's a lot of fun. It rhymes with the first film, or with the, the first in this trilogy. You know, with the needs of the many. Now the crew are going to break all the rules, risk everything that they've ever done for the love of a friend. Yeah. Only thing that I feel uneasy about is that Uhura doesn't get to go on the rescue mission. It's only I, all the lads that it is, she stays back. But she gets such a good scene when she actually tells, gets the guy, this <laughs> blowhard of a kind of a young junior officer is just blowing away about how big he is. And Uhura is just kind of sitting at this dull desk job. And all of a sudden she says, do you want to see some action, honey? And she brings out the phaser. Old City Station at 2200 hours. All is well. Understood. All stations clear. You amaze me, Commander. Oh, how is that? A 20-year space veteran, yet you choose the worst duty station in town. I mean, look at this place. This is the hind end of space. Peace and quiet appeals to me, Lieutenant. Yeah, well, maybe that's okay for someone like you, whose career is winding down. But me, I need some challenge in my life, some adventure, maybe even just a surprise or two. Well, you know what they say, Lieutenant. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Good evening, Commander. Is everything ready? Step into my parlor, gentlemen. That's Admiral Kirk, my God. Very good for you, Lieutenant. 
but it's damn irregular. No destination orders, no encoded IDs. All true. Well, what are we going to do about it? I'm not going to do anything about it. You're going to sit in the closet. The closet? What, have you lost all your sense of reality? This isn't reality. This is fantasy. You want an adventure? How's this? The old adrenaline going? Huh? Good boy. Now get in the closet. Okay. Uh, Go uh, on. Go on. I'll just get in the closet. Okay. I'm glad you're on our side. Can you handle that? Uh... Oh, I'll have Mr. Adventure eating out of my hands, sir. And I'll see all of you at the rendezvous. Oh, and Admiral. All my hopes. When they let the cast sort of scene steal, it works. You realize that they've got so much charisma, even if it gets goofy at times. Yeah. I really like this film. Yeah. I thought it was it was a great sequel and it is a bit of a Christ metaphor, you know, the resurrecting Jesus. But what did you think of it? I had loads of fun with this. Like I I know there's kind of rule there there was this rule previously that the odd Star Trek films are all bad and the even Star Trek films are good. I think that's bullshit because this is a fucking good film. It might have been true for a certain period of time. Yeah, it's not true. But, you know, once you get... (laughs) We got some bad even films later on. Um, But for me, the the scene of them dealing the Enterprise out of Stardock, them having to open the big hangar doors and the the ship, I think they're reversing it out. I'm not sure if they're actually going out in reverse or they're going out forward. It feels like they're going out in reverse. There's loads of tension. That score is fantastic. You see all of the characters like Scotty even, I'm trying, Captain. I'm trying to get it open, Captain. And you just feel this is fun. This is great fun. And when they get out there and escape with the Excelsior, I think it's the Excelsior that's on their tail, that uh, kind of um, sabotage behind them. It's just an exhilarating film. And I went, just for that scene alone, it's worth it. It's a cracker. And Sulu gets to be a really sort of a... a dashing, suave, little um, ass kicker. <laughs> what is, he's got his coat thrown over his shoulders <laughs> and he's sashaying around. He's like, he's sashing around. don't call me tiny. <laughs> he's got that great voice where it just doesn't sound like he should have that voice. Yeah. <laughs> and his platform shoes. <laughs> don't get smart, tiny. Admiral, Starfleet's man. sick. Here, take a look. <laughs> Side elevator. Agents on their way up. Don't call me tiny. Do you know, he was really miffed about that. He's like, he's not saying that to me. He's not calling me tiny. And then Adam had to convince him, no, it's going to work. And uh, of course, that would have brought the house down. Uh, It's a fun film. It's a fun film. It is fun. And in any other movie, Kirk going off to save his friend, it would be one man on a mission. He'd have to go it alone. But the benefit of the Trek films, and I think they fall down a lot in the next generation movies with this, it's the team effort. It's always Kirk needs the other guys around him. If he gets separated from them, it's them banding together to get him back. Yeah, He can't do it alone. It's the crew of the Enterprise. He's just the spearhead. Again, another great witty film totally all over the place but it really feels like it deepens the mythology of, of Star Trek and just feels like a fantasy film the work that these few films do in actually really cementing their relationship relationships as an entire crew 
goes far beyond what the original series did, in my opinion, because they weren't allowed to have certain conflicts and they weren't allowed. I I really do feel their personalities came alive in these in these films. And yeah, I think it's because of this. We have the impression of that cast and that crew because of those films, more so than the original film series. Is this the one where Scotty says, I know this ship like the back of my hand and then knocks himself out? That's five, but it's a good oh, one. that's five. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a five. good one. I Do you know what? People hate that moment. I thought it was hilarious. It's funny. It's a funny <laughs> moment. Yeah. So a very good second chapter, I think, in the trilogy of films. Yep, Absolutely directly following on from the second and it leads on to a wonderful final conclusion of this kind of t- tree uh, but they make some storyline. big big swings in this like as I said Kirk goes off to rescue his friend and it costs him the Enterprise and it costs him David mm-hmm. and really you know when you think of the, the arc of the character in the second film they're really putting him through the ringer and I think the f- these films benefit massively from that. The, the characters in these movies, the original cast of especially Kirk, they're being arced. They have mm-hmm. big moral dilemmas that they're dealing with and they're navigating them in ways which are fundamentally changing who the characters are. Spock has been reborn. Yeah. They're really betting in on what is the, the arc of Kirk? Why are we telling this story for him? And the movies are all the better for that because they feel robust and strong and, and grand. Can I talk to briefly highlight another moment, another Shatner performance moment that I fucking loved in three. And it's the moment he learns that his son has been killed and he's on the deck of the Enterprise. And what, his reaction is he, he stumbles and he, he kind of collapses onto the steps behind him. And it, again, it's not overacting. It, it feels truthful. It feels really truthful. It's like a blow, and it's and it's it knocks him off his feet, and it's 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 moving. I don't get where people are coming from when they say that he is a bad actor. I think he he is a theatrical actor, but he sells so many moments. He just hits all the, the different levels that you need. In many ways, he reminds me of like Harrison Ford, the way that Harrison Ford would deliver a line. And who is a bigger movie star than Harrison Ford? That's interesting. So he's he's in that mold. Mm. You could actually even put Shatner in Star Wars. He'd fit right in. Star Wars? <laughs> oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can do Star Wars. I can do it. Imagine him as a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Just imagining. Use the Force, Luke. I can't do it. <laughs> that is why you <laughs> fail! <laughs> He'd be a great Yoda. He's probably as, yeah. about the same height as he has Yoda. Oh, no, he looks he looks like he can throw a punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where we get into, in this one, where you're seeing Kirk have a fist fight again. Yeah. I almost prefer him when he doesn't have to resort to that. Because as soon as he gets into, you know, swinging fists, uh, uh, it, it feels a little um, like Tim Allen and Galaxy Quest. <laughs> Which is? Posturing. <laughs> okay. It's so much more fun when you see them using their wits, when they have to outwit their opponent and they have to they have to trick them because that's what it is. It's all about tricking. It's all about... And they do do that, like, you know, when they ultimately... The big trap they set is they uh, do the switcheroo on the... They set, set the Enterprise to self-destruct. Which is a very clever and great little switcheroo. As we're talking about sort of Shatner's persona, I think also Kirk benefits when he is the underdog or when he's put on the back foot. Mm-hmm. Or if, if he's dealing with existential questions like aging and stuff, because he's got such a he's got such a 
personal sort of vigor and confidence that if he doesn't have something to knock him down a few pegs, then it's almost like the Bruce Willis effect where as soon as he is succeeding, he becomes smarmy. But if he's on his ass, then he becomes charming and sort of that moxie and get up and go sort of like, you're not going to best me. And and you, you like that. Yeah. So, yeah. You like that bravado despite his obvious uh, pain yeah and failing and and being the the underdog you kind of go oh you kind of like someone kind of kind of saying I'll show you I'm the best around yeah. <laughs> you know? oh it's, it's great and then came in 1986 probably the Rocky Four of Star Trek movies in that it's a very very 80s film it's a bit of a, a departure tonally from all the rest but it is for many people their favorite and it was their most profitable oh was it tell me tell me give me the numbers i'll play a trailer okay <laughs> give me a trailer avoid the planet earth at all costs we are under the attack of an opening probe notify all stations starfleet emergency red alert Earth is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu, take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate, 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. We will beam in tonight, collect the photons, and beam out. I want you all to be very careful without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. Got to bring in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you. Book eight. Book nine. Now. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. It's the 23rd century and a mysterious alien power is threatening Earth by evaporating the oceans and destroying the atmosphere. In a frantic attempt to save mankind, Kirk and his crew must travel back to 1986 San Francisco where they find a world of punk, pizza and exact change buses that are as alien as anything they've ever encountered in the far reaches of the galaxy. It's the second film directed by Leonard Nimoy had a budget of 26 million and it had a box office of 133 million. Yes, I'm delighted. The seventh highest grosser of 1986. It came out at Christmas, which is a departure from the other releases. 
Harv Bennett was back this time scripted. You know, he produced and he added to the stories of the other films. And it really is a fish out of water comedy. I love this film. I love it. It's so joy-filled. It's so funny. And there's there's no big bad. There's no, like, you know, big bad villain in this story. And it doesn't need it because time's against them. And and I, I, I love this film. I love this film from when we first start out with them on the planet Vulcan. On trial. Yeah, basically. And you feel like, oh, they, now they truly are outcasts. They're outlaws. How are they possibly going to get back into the system? They're, they're going back to probably jail time Kirk is in ruins and that's just his hairpiece does he <laughs> does he wear a hairpiece it's very very convincing uh, I don't know I, I think he's got great hair regardless regardless again we have this kind of object coming from the outer systems and coming in and threatening the earth itself kind of similar to the plot of the first one the motion picture yeah it's got that obelisk fortunately for them the only way that they can... It's not that they're trying to get into good books, but Earth's in, in danger, and they just go on a mission to rescue Earth, which is to go back in time and and steal, pick up a... It's a humpback whale, isn't it? Two humpback whales, yeah. Oh, yeah, which, yeah. <laughs> which, the most far-fetched, outlandish sci-fi element in this uh, film is the fact that an aquarium in San Francisco has two humpback whales in <laughs> captivity. Luckily enough for them. yeah. It gives the cast loads to do. Everybody has their moments. Like Chekhov, who gets picked up infiltrating a naval vessel, and they think that he's a Russian spy. I am Pavel Chekhov, a commander in Starfleet, United Federation of Planets, service number 656-5827D. All right. Let's take it from the top. The top of what? Name. My name? No, my name. I do not know your name. You play games with me, mister, and you're through. I am? May I go now? <laughs> There's a moment where he and Uhura... Uhura? Uhura? Uh, Nichelle Nichols. Uhuria. Uhuria. I can't pronounce her name. Uhuria. Uh, they go, they're looking for the nuclear vessels, and he goes yeah. up to a cop and he says, Excuse me, can you bind me to the nuclear vessels? And the cop is just staring at him. <laughs> Where's Almeida? <laughs> It's so funny. It's so funny. It, it never goes so far. I think Kirk in this, he manages to write that line. The other characters go a bit broader where you've got Bones, yeah. uh, Scotty and them infiltrating the, the tech. <laughs> I love this too. <laughs> Computer. <laughs> so Scott, Scotty's presented with uh, the, the, the guy who owns the company says, well, you can just use our computer and, and, and he picks, and he tries to speak to computer computers and respond and, and uh, they, they, they use business, this the mouse and the he mouse. picks it up like a walkie talkie. <laughs> Computer. Computer. And he says it in a very pleasant way. It's like, <laughs> <With> the, Hello. <laughs> it's like how your nan would deal with like a ring camera. I must say, Professor, your knowledge of engineering is most impressive. Yes, back home we call him the miracle worker. Indeed. <laughs> uh, may I offer you something, gentlemen? Dr. Nichols, I might be able to offer something to you. Yes? I notice you're still working with polymers. Still? What, what else would I be working with? What else indeed? I'll put it another way. How thick would a piece of your plexiglass need to be at 60 feet by 10 feet to withstand the pressure of 18,000 cubic feet of water? Oh, that's easy. Six inches. We carry stuff that big in stock. I have noticed. 
Now suppose, just suppose, I were to show you a way to manufacture a wall that would do the same job, but be only one inch thick. <laughs> would that be worth something to you? Eh? <laughs> You're joking. Perhaps a professor could use your computer. Please. Computer? Computer? Ah. Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. But then <laughs> when, when Scotty is presenting him with the formula for uh, like how he can invent this groundbreaking, you know, uh, plexiglass or whatever. He's just tapping keys and all of a sudden there's graphs and there's everything is just populating the screen. Like it's completely impossible, but it's still, it's so much fun. Catherine Hicks is the guest star in this film. Yeah. It's one of the things they do in all the movies is they bring in somebody new to almost be the audience surrogate, I suppose. Mm, yeah. Or they're either the villain, as you say, there's no villain in this, which is really, really hard to do in a movie to create an obstacle which satisfies the needs of the protagonist to get to the end of the story mm-hmm. where there's no one sort of like making things harder for them because that's where you get good drama this it's a race against time yeah the Catherine Hicks role was originally going to be Eddie Murphy but he turned it down what? Hmm. I don't think it would have worked with Eddie Murphy I think it would have gone way yeah. further into Kirk kissing Eddie Murphy would have been weird <laughs> she's what great a- though I, I like Catherine Hicks she's got this sort of like it's not girl next door but it, it's um, milf next door yeah she's lovely she's got a great charm about her and she does when she jumps on but now there was a moment where she when Cork get, gets beamed onto the Vulcan ship when they're in uh, Golden Gate Park and she leaps on him at the last minute and I in my head I just went this is going to go horribly because half they're her gonna, body's going to get beamed gonna, across it's going to be like a, a chrono it's going to be like the scene from bloody the motion picture where um, oh, yeah. Janet Rand kills two guys because she can't work the transporter and they look at her like get out of my way woman <laughs> what terrible are you doing? terrible she was part of the original crew as well and she got sidelined because of sexual harassment was she? Yeah. Oh, wow. One of the producers was sexually harassing her. And because it became such an issue, rather than get rid of him, they got rid of her. Jesus Christ. Was that producer called Gene Roddenberry? No, 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 not Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry was loved by all of them, okay. really, to be honest. Even even Marina Sirtis talks about that. Gene Roddenberry and Miguel Barrett, his wife, mm. they were like her parents. That wow. They, when she was cast in The Next Generation, she was in her 20s, she was an English girl, she felt very isolated, and they used to constantly have her over to the house for dinners, and people had nothing but affection for Gene Roddenberry. That happened as well with The Next Generation. Some of the execs on that sort of sexually harassing Gates McFadden, and because she complained, they got rid of her. I didn't so, know this. Yeah, that's why she was gone from season two of... Oh my God. ...of TNG, and it was Patrick Stewart who said look I want Gates back and he called her and he said will you please consider coming back and uh, they got rid of that producer wow she came back can I give you a moment I love from The Voyage Home and it's a moment where Kirk and Spock are in the pickup truck of the marine biologist lady and the three of them have this banter but there's this banter between Kirk and Spock where Kirk is trying to get him to go online and Spock keeps saying the inappropriate thing and just the delivery between the two of them 
is fucking hilarious and so just the timing is perfect and I went it, it was like there were two old friends they were like two, a married couple that's what it was they were like this old, old married couple and they were so comfortable in each other's company but also and they knew each other's foibles and could talk over each other and um, kind of bicker well, they would have been playing these characters for 20 years at this stage yeah it's just it was just this beautiful moment where I went oh I'm enjoying these characters I'm in the cab of a pickup truck and it's just them I'm being entertained by them and it's, it's what I was saying great. about that you can have it's the personalities of the characters and the performers how they deliver those lines and just the great writing that's Star Trek it's that dynamic yeah definitely yeah. I think you did a little too much LDS LDS mm. Come on, why don't you let me give you a lift? I have a notorious weakness for hard luck cases. That's why I work with whales. We don't want to be in any trouble. You've already been that. Come on. Well, thank you very much. Don't mention it. And don't try anything either. I got a tire iron right where I can get at it. So, <clears throat> you were at uh, Berkeley? I was not. Memory problems, too. What did you mean when you said all that stuff back at the Institute about extinction? I meant hey, man, what you said on the tour. That if things keep going the way they are, the humpbacks will disappear forever. Oh, that's not what he said, farm boy. Admiral, if we were to assume those whales are ours to do with as we pleased, we would be as guilty as those who caused, past tense, their extinction. I have a photographic memory. I see words. Are you sure it isn't time for a colorful metaphor? You're not one of those guys from the military, are you? Trying to teach whales to retrieve torpedoes or some dipshit stuff like that? No, ma'am, no dipshit. Well, good. That's one thing I would have let you off right here. Gracie is pregnant. It was a huge hit. It reinvigorated the franchise. It was a high point for the cast. I just want to say, the end of four closed off this trilogy, this this arc of, for all these characters. Yeah, it's the end of that storyline. Yeah, big time. You feel like there's a closing of the storyline. The world is kind of set to right. The cast are reset. Everything now is kind of like, you know, the team are back together. You could have ended the series there. Mm-hmm, the film series. Yeah, absolutely. But they didn't. They did not. William Shatner put his foot down and he said, you gave two movies to Leonard Nimoy. It's in my contract. Favourite Nations. If he gets to direct, I get to direct. And they came back in 1989. The decade is coming to a close you're starting to feel the creakiness now of the performers but they came back Final Frontier directed by William Shatner a strange force has entered the galaxy the future of mankind is at stake it could only mean one thing greetings captain Spock I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation the vacation is over the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Enterprise, are you ready? Is taking adventure where it has never gone before. What are you standing around for? Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? From the mind of a madman. Hostile force has taken control of our vessel. Mr. Solo, full ahead. Through the center of the galaxy. You know we'll never make it through the Great Barrier. To the final frontier. Fascinating. How often have you done this? Actually, it's my first attempt. Fire the rocket! 
seconds. You never cease to amaze me. Nor I myself. This is the boldest trek of all. Warp speed now. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. The crew of the Enterprise is called to Nimbus 3, the planet of intergalactic peace. They are to negotiate in a case of kidnapping, only to find out that the kidnapper is a relative of Spock. Fires. This man is possessed by his lifelong search for the planet of Sean Connery, which is supposed to be the source of all life. Together, they begin to search for this mysterious planet. And that relative of Spock is his brother. <gasps> dun, Half-brother. Done. Oh my God. Which is a retcon because Spock didn't have a half-brother. Fires. But I don't know. They added it into this. And yeah, I said Sean Connery because originally they wanted... Spock's brother to be played by Sean Connery. Oh wow, that would mean I think the guy they got was actually quite good. He got good gravitas. He was quite good, and so the only holdover was that they kept the name of the planet Shakari. Sean Connery. And it sounds like Sean Connery. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, very good. Shatner had a bigger budget. He had 33 million this time. What? It's regarded by many as the nader of the Star Trek movies. Some would say it's the worst of all. Will we say that? I, nah, I don't know. No. But he did one stroke of genius. He brought back Jerry Goldsmith. Damn right. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. This had a bigger budget than all the previous films. Well, except for the motion picture. You'll notice that the bigger the budget, the smaller the films feel. So... I don't know where the money goes. It's probably into the cast. I know that Leonard Nimoy got 2.4 million for like Search for Spock and I'm sure it just kept going up and up. Okay. And that's, you know, early 80s money. But it made 63 million at the box office. So it wasn't that much of a flop. Okay. However, when you look at the rankings for the year, all of the Star Trek movies so far have made the top 10 of the year. Okay. And this one was the 21st most profitable film of 1989. So it was a huge drop down Ooh. from the others. Wow. What did you think of it? I genuinely think it's my least favorite of the original crew ones. Why? Okay. I One, I think it really looks ropey at times. There are some optical effects that look terrible. It's not just that the effects look terrible. They were hampered by the fact that there was a writer's strike going on. Okay. So they had to rush to shoot what they had. ILM, I believe. ILM usually did all of the effects for the Star Trek. They didn't have the same visual effects host. They had to use somebody else. And they'd never done a Star Trek movie before. And I think you can feel it. Oh, God, yeah. The effects are just... The visual effects are not there. But also, I don't think that the staging is... I'll give Shatner credit. It looks like a movie. It feels like a movie. There's some great flourishes with the camera. However, it's like the sets feel sound stagey. Mm-hmm. They feel a bit waftier and emptier. It feels like a B-movie, which the other movies haven't felt like. So that grandeur of the other films is sort of gone now, and it feels a bit televisual. And also, story-wise, it feels like an episode from the TV series, where there isn't really an arc for the characters throughout the course of the story. I think they delve really deep into the characters, though. They do go quite hard on... Well, Shatner was taken by televangelists. Okay. And so this false god this false prophet vibe and I think that guy being able to tap into the biggest traumas of the characters 
does give us some great insight into Bones' character, the fact that he couldn't save his father. But it doesn't add up to a hill of beans when it comes to the actual kind of like narrative, the, the main narrative of the story. It really doesn't. No. It's just, just like, it, is, it gives us a little bit more insight, but how does that affect the actual story? How does that, how does that manifest in their journey from the beginning of the story to the end of the story? And it doesn't really. You know, it's just about they go, they get hijacked by this charismatic, you know, Spock-like brother and uh, are taken to a planet where they meet bad Santa Claus. And God, it's, yeah. It's bad well, Santa. I'll, but again, they've done five movies and they're redoing the first film's mm-hmm. sort of uh, major thrust, which is they're seeking God. Back to a Roddenberry plot. It's such a classic Roddenberry plot, this. There's things about it that I really like. I do think that it's got some great moments. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I had not seen this one until we did this retrospective. Oh, right, okay. I'd seen moments of it. I remember the space boots, you know, the, the anti-gravity boots. Mm-hmm. And I remember Kirk climbing Yosemite. I think that's where he is. Yeah. I remember the elevator shaft. I blocked out a lot of other things. This is the movie where the line comes, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> and is it's, it- <laughs> it's not as bad as, as a line as you think it is. It's no, like, it's funny. It works in context. And the way he delivers it is funny again. It is, yeah. I Look, I am... A, I have come through watching these movies to have a much higher regard for William Shatner. I think he is a far better actor than he he gets credit for. And I also think that his movies are so much better than all of the other movies. And I do think that this is not the worst Star Trek movie by any stretch. Oh no, it's not. And that, and, and he's a competent director. It's, it's not as good as the prior three. It's not as good as the first one. But I think as a contained story, there's, there's lovely moments in it as well where it's like the three guys of of Spock, McCoy and, and Kirk realize that men like them don't have families. Okay. There's a sentimentality to it. But the lovely payoff of that, but together they are a family. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I just, I, I sent you that book to read, Fade In by Michael Pilar, and there's a moment in that where Patrick Stewart says to Michael Pilar when they're writing Insurrection, we don't need any of that row, row, row sentimentality shite. But I liked the row, row, row scene when they're just around the campfire, the three of them, and mm-hmm. I, I like that. Maybe that says more about me, but I don't know. I, I think this film is regarded too unfavorably. It's not that. I'm in the same. Listen, the, the, the one consistent thing through my rewatch of all these films is that when we have that original cast together, they can be doing the crossword, and it's fun. They just make it entertaining, and it's they they have a charm and charisma. What fell short about this film for me was the plot is very again thin, and it's, the final act is so rushed. The film has been compromised. It feels like it's been edited way down. It feels very short. It feels, I don't know what the runtime of, of this one is. 107. So that's uh, 107 minutes. Right. But if you were to tell me this is a 77-minute film, I'd believe you. It feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I like the planet. Not Shakari, but the original planet where we first see Spock. Spock's brother. Like, Cybok. That's it. Another K name. Yeah. So I like the way Cybok is introduced as almost Lawrence of Arabia type. Yeah. Yeah, it's worthwhile. Mm. 
you could almost skip it. You don't really need to like it, it. The events of this film don't affect the next one. But if you're enjoying the characters, it's definitely worth a visit. I, I I just think it's still it's it's still fun to spend time with these characters. And you know, uh, I don't like that the crew turn on Kirk. That they become so infatuated with Cybok, with Uhura and Chekhov and Scotty. They're all like devotees of this. Um, televangelist yeah but um, I do like that we get to see more of the backstory to Bones that's and, a, uh, a lovely it's scene it's a good scene and we get Uhura doing the fan dance out in there my god that was where Shatner thought I want to give Nichelle something more to do yeah and one of the guys joked that like we can have her doing a sexy striptease and he was like I love it oh no and, <laughs> it's terrible yeah, I mean, she she's regal. You don't need to be making her be this ingenue anymore. Yeah. But anyway, it's uh, it's worthwhile. with the starship. Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Then here is the proof you see. <laughs> Kevin. Okay, and we're back. <laughs> we're back. How are we going? We're halfway there. It's fun. It's long. It's, well, you knew it was going to be long. Captain. What? I recommend splitting this episode in two. It will help with downloads and allow you to do one of your little skits. <sighs> Whatever. Will, you have to bridge. <gasps> Computer. Play Chilo Mix 1. This word fucks me up. Fucking, 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 fucking proper looking cuts. Fucking Putin, fucking Twitter, fucking petty, just fucking. Give me some of that cat shit that fucking Pierce makes. Hot. Cuts, cuts, cuts. Little son is a little mini cut. Prank you. Ignorant. Ha! Kevin. Hey. 
Did you do uh, it again? I'll just let it burn my tongue. That replicator runs hot, you know. I'll be fine. Go on. Go on, I'll talk to you later on. Captain's log. Supplemental. After returning to the pub booth without instant dead man, who uh, inexplicably is dead, we had decided to record our best Star Trek episode, but the episode ran long, so we have split the episode ah, in two, and we will pick up where we left off in a couple of days. I think it's going to be a good one. Kevin out. Anymore. I just can't do it anymore. It's what a fucking bafta. This is what fucks me up. Fucking, 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 fucking. The Best Bits podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. Our audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a Patreon member where you'll receive bonus shows where we talk about recent releases and what we're up to. And you'll receive access to our Discord chat room where we hang out with our listeners. Search the Best Bits podcast on Patreon or click on the link in the show notes. Dead man to pod booth, come in, over. Dead man to pod boss, captain, anybody. Oh, Jesus. Well, this is just fucking shite. What am I going to do left in 1986? And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show, the full episode. Plus 100 more are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us 3 euro. <laughs> you can't <Okay>. throw what? <laughs> oh my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits with Kevin and Willem. Talking TV and the latest Okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened to it. I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like, nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought, they hadn't listened to it yet. And then, of yeah. course, I was delighted with that. And people hated it. <laughs> it's not, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy on the ears in, a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice. So there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogwarts and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. I'm a psycho yeah, That's exactly what you do. So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. Know, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God. I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kev and Willem from the telly and the latest film. Talking shit to the dynamic duo. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage, Odette. 
<laughs> That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, so I'm saying, you just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start the timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm raring to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I I know is I saw a poster very recently. It went... There's a Madam Web film, and I'm what is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought. I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. It's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm-hmm. airless, and you know you just have sound stage after sound stage and. I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films where I feel like yes. there's nothing organic happening in these from the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels it's artificial wafer thin just wafery artificially no sustenance no satisfaction you know protein in it whatsoever you feel like oh yeah. wow I just, I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry it feels like eating plastic okay on the whole, it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it was it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went to the Madam Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. 
for me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, and you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I had to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Caddy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Caddy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.